This is The New Disruptors, brought to you this episode by the concept of local community theater. One of our Disruptor-tier crowdfunding backers has donated their sponsorship option to encourage people to attend dramatic performances staged in your area. I'll tell you more about that at the break. Before I start this episode, thanks again to the hundreds of people who backed the Kickstarter campaign that let me restart the new Disruptors. If you'd like to become a patron of the show, helping to create more episodes through July 2019 and beyond, you can visit newdisrupt.org support, where you can become a patron on a recurring monthly or one-time yearly basis. At higher tiers of support, you get rewards too, including a fancy enamel New Disruptors pin. You can also buy one of the few remaining New Disruptors t-shirts. I have limited sizes available, but visit newdisrupt.org support for the link to find sizes. Buying a t-shirt also supports the show. And if you want to sponsor an episode of the New Disruptors, drop me a line at nd at newdisrupt.org and I'll provide more details. Now, on to the show. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast that says your dreams can come true, but then what? I'm your host, Len Fleischman, and welcome back to the new run of the series. This is episode 101, and I am pleased as punch to welcome back Jesse Janae and Stefan Ongo, the co-founders of Lumi. Uh, they first appeared on this podcast in 2013 in episode number 11, a very early episode. But Lumi in 2018 is quite a different organization than Lumi was in 2013. We're going to talk about that. Jesse, Stefan, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being on. Thank you so much for having us. You're making me feel old. (laughs) (laughs) Five years, let me tell you. It gets gets worse after that. Um, So, you know, when we talked last time, I'd been down to L.A. at some point before that, and I'd Mm -hmm. uh, visited your offices, and um, I was very excited about Inco Dye, your uh, your, uh, light-sensitive fabric ink, and that was kind of what you guys were working on. And then a few years passed, and I find out that Lumi is an entirely different company. Same company, same people. Same excitement, enthusiasm, but now you're doing something totally different. I want to talk about that. I mean, we we talked, I wrote a a Fast Company article a couple years ago in which we spoke uh, about your business. So I was talking about different modes of of shipping and packaging for independent companies and how that market was starting to evolve really rapidly. And that was two years ago. Uh, Mm -hmm. And now you're well into that. But maybe let's start with, we'll we'll give the the reveal later about exactly what Lumi's doing. People can (laughs) go online and search if they want in the meantime. But but, uh, Incodai, Jesse, you devoted like a hunk of your life to yes. <laughs> making this happen from when you were a teenager. And we don't have to, you know, the, the people can listen yeah. to the episode 11 if you want the early story. You know, you started as a teenager. This is a goal of yours. You managed to acquire the rights. You put in your production. So what happens when you accomplish, you had a life's goal and you accomplished it? What happened? Yeah, I think I think that's such a fascinating thing to hear someone else say because it doesn't feel that way to you when you're living it. Like the concept for someone else to say to you, like, there's this goal and you had it and you accomplished it. How does that feel? You're like, I don't know. Let's go ask someone else. <laughs> that's a really good question. Um, no, but, it, but I do acknowledge like it is true. Like we set out to do this thing. I had been working on this, you know, weird fabric dye technology since I was a teenager and then <laughs> and then we pushed it out into the market. We, at its height, we, was, we were selling it over 1,500 retail stores. We had we packaged it. We produced it. We were basically vertically integrated, running a dye, you know, shop in Los Angeles, shipping product all over the world. We did all of those things. You had like a 12,000 square foot factory, right? Something like yes, that? Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. A 12,000 square foot building where we had a bottling machine. We could bottle like uh, 8,000 bottles a day. We had a whole assembly line. Um, we we ran a dye you know, business. And, and, and then we had, you know, retailers in like Sweden and Germany. It's just crazy to, it, it sounds even crazy to me when I say it out loud that that was, and you're right, it was a chunk of my life, a chunk of our lives from, if I started working on that age, you know, 16, um, and, and through, I don't know, how old is I? I mean, through, how, how old am I now? I'm 30. I threw 26, 27. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Almost 10 years. So 10 years of, of that shindig. Um, yeah. And, and you have to ask the question like, yeah, what does it take to work on a, a photographic fabric dye technology for 10 years? I don't know. It sounds it still sounds insane when I when I think about it now. But it but but we I think what we were working on was like learning so much process and learning so many things. It it, it even when we were doing it, we weren't thinking it, it didn't feel like we were spending all of our time working on the fabric dye. 
Well, I think if I remember right from what you you talked about, um, you know, in the in the process of of um, switching out of that as your main focus, that uh, there were limitations that maybe you didn't know when you started about what the scope of the business would be. I mean, when you started as a mm-hmm. teenager, obviously not. And when you turned this into sort of more of a full fledged thing, I mean, how did you scope out what you thought the ultimate extent of Incodai would be? It was. It evolved. It evolved many times, um, and and you know, Stephanie, you could speak to it. Yeah. I mean, if you go back to our first Kickstarter campaign back in two thousand nine, <laughs> we don't even talk about Incodai. We're like, here's some wallets. They're made with sunlight. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so there was an evolution. We didn't even realize that we wanted to sell it as a fabric dye until we did our second Kickstarter campaign in, in 2012. Yeah. Three years later. Three years later. Yeah, so yeah. That, that, there was already like several iterations of the Incodai business. And I think we didn't even know that, we didn't know who our competitors were even. Like we, we didn't realize that we were an art supply. We were just a yeah. product in the world and we made an iOS app for whatever reason and just made it really, it was just a part of our lives and it, it, it felt very organic. That's how unsophisticated we were about business, though. Like, it, it, we, we didn't think for, we didn't have any consideration about whether there was like a competition to this or what the market was or, or anything before we just launched this product and spent several years of our lives on it. <laughs> <laughs> we, we were like, there was, it was not like we were dumb, but it just was like for motivated by a different reason. Like, I think when you have, um, there is a naivete that's kind of nice about having almost an utter lack of business experience where where there we ended up growing that company to in its largest year had like seven figure revenues and stuff and and but honestly like at any earlier juncture like that would have seemed mathematically impossible. Like, if we had done any business analysis on it at any time, it would have been like, yeah, this is a bad idea. So so there is a sort of naivete and interesting thing about pushing forward via your lack of knowledge. <laughs> yeah, but you guys come from a, an art and design background. So, yeah. you know, I, it seems like Incodai was almost a, or the or Lumi as a company and Incodai as a product was, to me as an outsider, almost an evolution of an artistic process that you had a vision you wanted to express and you had a medium that no one else had access to. And that became a way of making things. And you're like, wait, maybe we can make the medium available to other people to be like a creativity multiplier that, could be sold. I don't know. Is that, I don't know if that went through your minds at all. But it kind of. How long do these episodes go usually? <laughs> Jesse and I have some whiskey right now. We're ready to go five, five, six hours. Well, do you know about the invention of lithography in the about eighteen hundred? Yeah. This sounds like it's off base. Do you know about this? Yeah. No, I do. Yeah. It was almost. Um, an, it's an artist, right? It's Alwa yes. Senefelder, and he was. It was almost an accident. He didn't intend precisely to invent a new form of like reproduction. And Most I, printing processes are like that. It's yeah, fascinating. You're like totally printing, right. They're so elemental, right? Like it's like printing processes are elemental. People can do whatever they want with them, but they're they're like this elemental thing. And, and a lot of them have, yeah, had some sort of creative beginning. Um, and yeah, so we, ca- we came from that kind of bend to it. But it's correct that at some point we think to ourselves, you know what, other people could use this. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that echoes throughout our whole, car- like our whole business careers. And it is, um, a kind of a profound question to ask once you've created something of like, you know, the the kind of classic like hoard or share um, question of, of of something is and it, it's an interesting one. I think Stefan and I have gone the share route many times, but it's a very questionable route. Like when you're doing it, it's not obvious like that it will work in any way or that anyone would care about the die. It's just like it's a lark. It feels like a lark when you're doing it. Sometimes I think we're just really slow learners because. <laughs> Every time that each evolution of Lumi has been one step zooming out every time. So in the very beginning, it was like, okay, we're making wallets that are printed with this fabric dye. And then we're like, okay, what if other people, people started asking us, can I print things with this fabric dye? Can you put my dog's face on this pillow? And we'd be like, no, but you can do it if we make this fabric dye. And then we start marketing this fabric dye and making retail packaging so that it can go in stores. And then people start asking us, hey, how'd you figure out how to make the retail <laughs> packaging? And we're like, yeah. that's a great question. So it, it, it's, oh, and then so we started making packaging. And then people are like, oh, 
Uh, now, you know, yeah. Now people are asking us like, oh, you make packaging. Like they're asking us all sorts of very complicated business mm-hmm. questions about the future of e-commerce and how do you scale these direct to consumer businesses. And we're like, oh, I guess we know some things about that. Maybe we could help you with that. So like in the course of supplying them packaging, now we're asked like helping them answer fundamental questions about their business oh, as well. That's great. Oh, but so it's. It's a zoom out. It's always yeah. a zoom out, but it, but it's very slow. It's taken us ten years <laughs> to well, zoom out to packaging. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting because it's it's as if you're almost like a business analyst, like I mean, like a psychoanalyst. That like people, <laughs> you think you're solving one problem, and then it turns yeah. out there are other problems that people need to be solved. Once they understand that you can solve one problem, they assume you can solve others too. I mean, it's not exactly Craig Christensen and Innovator's Dilemma, but I think there's a little of that. You know, his thing is always, what's the job this thing do, does, as opposed to this is a product, this is the market. And I, I think there is that, like, what's the job you need? He's like, well, I need, I need someone to, like, psychoanalyze my business and tell me what I actually do and how to make it uh, better. People I trust are competent to do that. Well, I remember ordering the very first run of custom boxes that we made for Incodie, and we received it on two pallets and it was like the biggest amount of stuff we had ever seen in our lives and it broke our power line in our <laughs> building oh, and stuff geez. it was like wow. it was a whole th- yeah because a freight truck came over freight to the truck d- came over and broke our uh, yeah our power line. it was it was a disaster and then we remembered this four years later when we started shipping pallets to people and we wrote a blog post about what do you do when you receive freight for the first it time called, what do you expect when you're expecting a freight shipment. <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> but you would be so surprised, though, because that we wrote that blog post like two two years ago or more. Now we have customers. We shipped a few months ago something like two hundred or three hundred pallets to someone, wow. and they had no concept. Like they they they're a company that already has like you know distribution, warehouse, warehouse and that kind of stuff, and because we've made it so easy through the platform to just manufacture stuff, they're like, okay, we'll send it to this address. And they didn't... And the address is a real warehouse and stuff, but they had no concept that it was so much stuff. Um, And so when we were like, okay, cool, there's 40 truckloads coming to you, like 40 truck drivers are going to show up in the next, like, you know, three days to deliver everything. They were like, oh, we can't, we can accept like two truckloads. And we were like, interesting, you ordered 40 truckloads. So yeah, it's, it's this continual, even once we think we understand what people are struggling with, we are learning this ever expanding net, like concept of like, oh, you surprised them again. You know, there's a new problem here. Do you know that story? It's actually a myth, but it's the uh, the futures contract industry. Uh, like if the futures contract, you buy a commodity like uh, bacon or corn, and if you don't actually trade it, it's like a hot potato thing. They come and like just dump it on your front lawn. This yeah. Is, it's not true, but it's a pervasive myth. And I ha- that's what it sounds like you're talking about. Like, well, I ordered 300 pallets and I, you know, or you know, I hit 100,000 into the order box and hit go. And then like 300 pallets showed up and I didn't know, I couldn't conceptualize it. So that's a, well, let's get into that because that's an issue of how you handle uh, customer expectations, like how you teach people about what they're actually getting when they start down this process of it being easy to get stuff. But let's finish up the Incodie story briefly, at least, because is you know there's a transition from one business to the other. Yeah. But so you've kind of achieved your, uh, you know, maybe not the end point. You went on Shark mm-hmm. Tank. Yes. You know, yes, you pitched your business. <laughs> and uh, and then, uh, uh, I guess, what, ha- what, what happened? <laughs> I, I can... <laughs> There's so many stories about just Shark Tank alone, to be honest, so we could go forever on that I know that somebody, one. another Fast just, Company uh, interview subject, I think, was on Fast uh, of mine, was on uh, Shark Tank or on some kind of Shark Tank not long ago. So um, it's, uh, it's a recurrent pattern. It's a fascinating human experience to be on Shark Tank. But it is, but I think you're highlighting something about us as well that, that is like, um, I don't know, it's just kind of interesting potentially, which is like, we're just trying things. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the other thing is like people, uh, we notice people in business have a lot of like, um, business is supposed to be serious, I guess. Like, <laughs> like people expect business to be like a serious thing. And so, so there's a lot of um, uh, kind of emotions tied up in like making your business serious. And then that leads to, I think, a diminishing um, experimentalism sometimes yeah. where like there's a lot of entrepreneurs when I said I was going on Shark Tank who were like, ooh, like welcome to the graveyard. Like, like, <laughs> like kind of like, why would you do that? Like, it's like maybe admitting that your business is, you know, needs help or maybe like having you been working on it for several years, why would you, why would you need to do that? And 
And our approach was like so different. We were just like, it's a thing we've been invited to do. Um, the, the, the net like loss potential is very minimal. Like mm-hmm. the, the, basically the only thing that could go wrong is you embarrass yourself beyond all recognition. Um, that, and, and I was like, ah, I'll roll the dice. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, and so it's, I do that on a daily basis. So yeah, it's fine. I know. Like I'm, I'm, I show up to work every day anyway. I might as well do it on national TV. So, um, I think that is an element of our business careers where we're always willing to roll the dice even beyond when maybe it seems reasonable to do so. Like, and, mm-hmm. and, and you're, you're approaching that question, which is like you transition away entirely from Incodi or we, we do that. And that was, that was an extreme rolling of the dice moment where we've got like 10 employees. We have a business that's profitable um, and supporting itself entirely. Um, and a product that people like, like a product that was, you know, successful in the sense of people like it, they use it. And we go, you know what, let's, let's throw this out the window and do a different thing. I think the thing about us in, in the zooming out process is also we love primary source information. We mm. like to see how the, the sausage gets made. We want to know everything about everything. Yeah. And so Shark Tank, us doing it was also about like, hey, you know, this is happening in Los Angeles down this, you know, down, down the, the, the figurative street uh, or, or literal Basically. street. <laughs> <laughs> Either way, I guess. Um, and and. And so we we're curious, how does that show even happen? It's like a zeitgeist thing. It's like, it's a, it's, it's this thing. Well, one of the things that actually convinced me to do it, which was interesting, is that we had been, um, we were potentially in the interview flow, and then I, I took a plane trip. I have, I forget where, I'm sure it was for business. And, and I sat next to this um, teenager. She was like 14 or something. She was pretty young. And I, she asked me, what do you do? And I said, I run this business. And her first question was, have you been on Shark Tank? Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I and I was I happened to be like in the interview flow for Shark oh Tank God. at the time. And I was like, no, I haven't. And then I just started asking her, like, why do you ask? And yeah. and her entire lens on business was watching Shark Tank. Like her entire understanding of how business functions was watching Shark Tank. And it struck me as like, you know what? Like I, like this is just a zeitgeist thing of like this is how people who don't know business are understanding business right now, and it'd be really kind of cool to just like participate. That's great. No, that may see. Uh, this is why I have such an affinity for you too, because I think I have the same approach to life, which is, wouldn't it be interesting if, like, yeah. what if you were the designer in residence for a year and printed a letterpress book? Sure, that sounds amazing. I'm just gonna do that. What if you went on yeah. Shark Tank? that's great. I would learn so much from the experience right on. But I think yeah. that's how you find, that's where I, I mean, not to keep going back to the artistic thing, but I think as people coming from a design background and having design thinking, I think I've always thought the design education is centered around the notion of experimentation. If you get a good design experience, mm-hmm. design education experience is that it's about um, iteration and learning and trying and throwing out a lot of ideas to get to the right one. And the right one is some level arbitrary. There's a whole bunch of right decisions and you narrow that down or you come to certain kinds of aesthetic or or uh, you know, uh, creatable, replicable things. And so when you talk about it this way, I'm like, you're like, of course you would be on Shark Tank because it's an experience that would help you, you know, give you the insight, but it's also, it's yet another way. It's like an iterative part of what you were trying to do as a business. And maybe you wouldn't have gone out to get conventional uh, investment. It sounds like that wasn't on the uh, the table at at that point, but Shark Tank was intriguing. Yeah, well, actually, this this is, I think, maybe a weird thing to admit, but the 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 um, I was the episode. You know, my segment gets added. Our, our segment gets added down to like seven or eight minutes. I was talking to them for ninety minutes, wow. and they're they actually ask really good questions. Like the people are smart. They edit for the sizzle when when the show goes out, but they ask good questions about the company, and they really beat me up about like it and and what products we were planning on launching and stuff. And I kind of walked off the show being like, you know what? Like they're right. This business is pretty okay. Like. <laughs> I should do something better than that. Like I, I actually, so it got, gave me a lens of wow. like killing it faster. That's amazing. So it was like a crit then. You got a crit on your business yeah. and, uh, and on, went back. On, and, on national TV. Wow. But also the, the timing is, is hard to understand because we recorded it in September and it came out in February. Yeah. So by that time we had already uh, decided to do Y Combinator. So like the, the mm-hmm. time frame was we do Shark Tank, it accelerated, I think, the process of us figuring out that we wanted to kind of move on to something bigger. We had a few ideas that we had been thinking about after spending, you know, 
six years of our lives doing this. And in the between September and December, we applied, got into YC, joined YC, and then halfway through Y Combinator, Shark Tank happens. <laughs> the whole time, yeah. by the way, they they had told us like, hey, your episode may never air. Right, right. And, yeah. and we won't tell you until a week before wow. that it's going to come okay. out. Yeah. And so like we're through, we're in this like, you know, program where by the way shark tank is very poorly received and even right. like the the founders of yc were at, at at some point saying in front of the entire batch like 400 people never do shark tank yeah, like, it's a total mistake so so i was in the front row i was in the front row while the partners of y combinator like these storied people who have like it's, shepherded it's the final dinner companies oh and they're each giving their last word of wisdom it, it, it literally no, Stefan is not exaggerating. Their last so in so during my coming in, our episode airs for different business ideas, all super confusing and like really weird. And and at the final dinner of Y Combinator, to after three months of doing this, everyone is sharing their last pearls of wisdom. I'm sitting in the front row, and one of them says, "Never do something like Shark Tank. We've never seen someone succeed after doing that." Every single oh, company wow. from Y Combinator that has done Shark Shark Tank doesn't exist anymore. Yes, Jesus. and I, I yes, they said that. And, and then after- This was a month after this was our a episode. This month after our episode, Aaron. And so it actually, there's so many hilarious like moments of learning in this <laughs> where go rewinding for a second back to like doing it and learning from it where it's like almost like a live critique. When Mark Cuban stares you in the face and goes like, this isn't that cool. Like you're like, damn. <laughs> <laughs> Like you're just like again, the guy has a point, you know. Like and, and you're you're just like and and he that didn't even like make it onto live TV. But you're you're just there's these moments of learning where what was your desired expectation? Like okay, sure, I could have gone on Shark Tank and had like and gotten the money or whatever and. Maybe we would launch like more product lines. And the product, he wasn't saying the product wasn't cool. He was saying like, I don't think this is heading like right, where you right. are heading maybe. And, and, but there's a moment where you just got to appreciate the lesson, which is like, you've got a, you know, billionaire or whatever, who's like outspoken, staring you in the face and just going like, you know what, Jesse? I don't know. <laughs> I'm out. Yeah, yeah. I'm out. And you go, you know what, Mark? Okay. <laughs> I'm out too. Oh my God. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I didn't say that, but it's like it's like a moment in life where you just like appreciate it for what it this is. is you this know? is like you know uh, Graham Chapman of uh, Monty Python. He tells the story. Uh, he told the story that he was training as a doctor. You know, while he after doing the footlights at uh, Cambridge, I think, and um, they were about to go on tour. The Monty Python folks, and he was in training. And the Queen Mum visited the hospital he's at. And he was chatting with her and he told her about the opportunity. Like, I don't know if I should remain and complete my studies or go off with Monty Python. She's like, oh, I think you should go off and tour. And so he did as the queen mom gave her approval. So he did. I'm like, you know, Mark Cuban isn't the queen mom, but, but there's a certain kind of point in the ecosystem. Yeah. He's made, you know, his, his first, Riches were were slightly accidental timing, but he's made some pretty good decisions at other points, and uh, and he's got his finger on the pulse, right? He kind of understands um, the the he has a a view into the picture of things I think few other people have because there's almost nobody with his influence and money and investment history. Like Jeff Bezos doesn't know as much as Mark Cuban does because Jeff Bezos's focus is both super laser beam and also in a totally different sphere. So who else has positioned himself anyway? But that's fancy. There's cycle time. Yeah, it's true. There's like this cycle time that he's put in and seeing so many, seeing so many businesses and doing what he has. So it's, it's, yeah, it's just kind of surreal to look back on. And then, and then you flash forward and we're in Y Combinator, <laughs> literally working on a completely new business. The oh episode airs, the YC partners are like really wow. down on, on, on the concept and they'll say things like, yeah, like no, no real entrepreneur would like ever do that. There's, there's just interesting moments where you have to make so much peace as well in yeah. your journey on any on any career path, right? Where like everyone is gonna, everyone has conflicting information. Like uh, one of my one of my things that I always tell any entrepreneur I'm talking to is like the second that anyone gives you advice and says that they know it yeah. to be true is like the second yeah. to stop listening. It's like it's um it's all conflicting information and you have to sort it out yourself. Um, no, going to Y Combinator in itself was, was another like, how does the sausage get made moment? Cause we, you know, we're running this company that was profitable and we were, there wasn't a great reason to do it at that point in time. We sort of like accidentally ended up doing it. And, but we were, 
again, pursuing that idea of primary source information, like we want to know this. And how many people do you know have done Kickstarter, YC, Shark Tank, angel investment mm-hmm. like we we really have a, i think a good lens of that and i think it allows us to have maybe more authority on um what you should do or what makes sense mm-hmm. for your business so you hit this plateau you're like maybe mark Cu- mark cuban maybe you're right um there's a line <laughs> i'm thinking of in the wedding singer about that right it's a uh, billy idol you're right right anyway um in the movie know. version, it'll be shortened to Jesse just saying that on air to Mark Cuban. Exactly, exactly. Let's take a break for this week's sponsor, Local Community Theater. Now, this is a neat thing. One of the high-tier backers of the Kickstarter campaign decided to donate their sponsorship slot to this concept of local community theater. When I was growing up in Eugene, Oregon, I did a ton of theater in my junior high and high school, and then I worked at a community theater in the summers. I ran the box office, ran the soundboard, appeared once, yes, in a full white rabbit costume in the heat of the summer, Eugene wasn't that hot in those days, running around the downtown in a fountain that's now been destroyed, singing, I'm late, I'm late, for a very important date. Community theater builds character, apparently, because made me the person I am today. But more seriously, local community theater is an incubator of talent. It's a place for people to express themselves without the requirements of reaching the professional tiers of theater, which require a lot more sacrifice and work to reach that point. A lot of great performers that you're aware of have come out of local community theater, and they're always running a shoestring, typically by volunteers with very little or no paid staff. They need your help too. So pick up a newspaper if you still look at newspapers or go online and find productions in your area. Go see Music Man or Fiddler on the Roof or Arsenic and Old Lace or more likely some of the more avant-garde and unusual and interesting theater being staged all around you at colleges and art schools and little community spaces you didn't know exist. There are hundreds of places around my city of Seattle that stage performances, troops that sometimes do one play a year or a musical, others that consistently mount new productions. I've seen some great shows in a space that squeezed 30 people in and some with thousands outdoors. You can support the notion of local community theater by attending a production today. Well, maybe not today, maybe tonight, but take a look for listings. And thank you very much to our disruptor tier kickstarter backer for donating their slot to encourage people to go support their local arts community thank you and back to the program but so you hit this point you kind of realize you've got a profitable business uh you've built something you've wanted to build your whole life it's been an incredible journey and you're like maybe there's not a direction to go here how did that feel to hit that wall or was it a wall i guess Mm -hmm. It was it was much more of a transition than a wall. Like, and we when we left to go to Y Combinator to start working on a whole new idea, we left the team behind to work on oh, Incodai, yeah. and they still had jobs at Incodai yeah. and stuff. You don't just you know like we didn't just literally pull the plug because <laughs> oh because we had a we even had a concept of like you know what let's go do this crazy thing. If we hate it, if we hate everything about it, we'll just come back and run Incodai. Like like w- there's nothing wrong with that company. So we didn't kill it. Um, we ended up winding it down over the period of like a year. So it, it's definitely more of a gradual transition. But I do think there's a really waking up and um, for Stefan and I to, to kind of like, for lack of a better word, like waking up to our potential in the sense that there's, how do we make the most, how do we give, how do we create the most leverage out of the things mm-hmm. that we know? Um, and, and you already touched on it, like something, but I'll add another detail, which is like, when you start realizing what the world is coming to you for, like how the world views you, um, in like there's power in that and, and, and opportunity. So an example of that is like we're running Inco Dye. We like our mechanism for making money was selling fabric dye, literally. Like that's how we made money. That's how we support ourselves and our employees. But what we realized was a, an increasing and enormous amount of questions and dialogue that we had on a daily basis was actually about how to launch a product, how to grow a company. But like our inbox was filled with like with the same frequency that people would email us questions about Inkrodai, people would email us questions about how did you do your last quick Kickstarter? How did you package your product? Where are you guys getting your, how do, who made your logo? Like just every question you can imagine, but with the same frequency as questions about our product. And so you start to realize like, you know what? The world isn't putting me in a box of selling Inkrodai. Like I am, like I, like I could do, like we should be answering these questions like why don't we have a way of making money off answering these questions um uh it's just this broader set of like broader perspective and 
we didn't have an answer. We just had the questions. <laughs> no, that's that's great. And I hear that from a lot of entrepreneurs, especially ones who did early unique products or who, early Kickstarter people. Tom and Dan at Studio Need, of course, are a great example of that. Is they wrote a book at one point, uh, forgotten the name of it. I'll have to put that in the show notes uh, about. It will be exhilarating. Oh yeah, isn't that a great name too? It's, it's so much their personalities as well. Uh, and yeah, it's just uh, people want to replicate. They see what you're doing and they want to do what you're doing in their realm, as opposed to doing exactly what you're doing. So you're the people to go to. So Incodai winds down. Uh, and you're switching your expertise. Um, and this is, I mean, everybody always talks about pivots and lots of businesses pivot and so forth, but this feels like transition the way you describe it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. so it's a new kind of thing, but I love packaging. See, I watch your shipping videos and I, (laughs) I love them and I like read the posts and I, I, I love everything about printing and making things and boxes and shipping and, and all that. So I know, I don't know how unique I am, maybe a little bit, uh, I think think a little bit, at least, at least a little bit, bit. but I talked to, when I talked to entrepreneurs, a big part of the issue that a lot of people face at every size of company, I actually think I was surprised when I first started to ship stuff on my own a few years ago. And I started to make things like the magazine book, uh, in 2014 that I arranged all the shipping for and wound up using, uh, Amazon for domestic uh, and um, mm-hmm. another firm, a mail firm for doing uh, international shipping. And I don't think it's funny. It's not like I thought there was some magic solution. Well, I'll call a mail house and it'll be affordable and cheap yeah. and they'll take care of everything. But I also don't think I realized the scale and difficulty at which things uh, worked. And yep. especially when you're sending out relatively small amounts of things, it's very hard. And so mm-hmm. um, you all had scaled up. I mean, there's the great Cards Against Humanities stories. I saw, I think you interviewed uh, mm-hmm. uh, Max Temkin had him on your podcast not long ago. And, and I just remember talking to him years ago, and he described the scale of going from, you know, some pallets to up to like railway cars um, over mm-hmm. a relatively short amount of time. And so you all, with Incodai, I assume that you had gone through this transition. Is that how you got into getting more and more into the packaging details through your own experience of, um, of scaling up through like orders of magnitude. Yeah, we, we lived the, we lived the problem. And I think you, you kind of like hit the nail on the head already, which is like when you are launching a product, you are obsessing about that product. You're obsessing about who's going to use it, what, what, what's special about it. And it really comes as a rude awakening for most how hard it is to actually get the product to the people physically. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, like literally physically, like you, you feel like you've already <laughs> climbed the mountain by writing the book or designing the thing or cracking the chemical formula for Incodai. You're like, I climbed a mountain. You get to the mountain and then you're like, wait, I'm just at the base camp here because there's like, I had no idea that just shipping it, like it sounds like the simple part. You're like, I literally wrote a book. Shouldn't shipping it be the easy part or whatever? Um, <laughs> and, and and when you say it out loud, it sounds obvious. And unfortunately it isn't. And, and I think the other insight that Seth and I had coming into this business from our Anchodi days was we were the incredible, we were the beneficiaries of incredible groups of people working on product, fit, digital product that I'm sure you're very familiar with, like Stripe, Square, mm-hmm. MailChimp, uh, Shopify, product to help us launch our business. And we, but then we, the rude awakening to how hard the physical component and the supply chain component, the shipping component was, was even ruder. Cause it's like, wait a sec, someone made it like $30 a month for me to launch an e-commerce store. Yeah. It's incredible. The developers are incredible, but then I want to ship this thing. And I'm like in a 20 threaded email thing with USPS. Like why? Like yeah, this is it, actually. It feels like you went yeah. back in time, right? Is it, it feels like suddenly, yes. you know, you're in a 2018 world and then it's like, why is it 1990 or 1950? Like I'm sending yes. faxes, I'm sending pieces of paper, I'm having long telephone conversations about things. And um, I, I, there are certain kinds of things yes. that are replicable to do. Like uh, in the last podcast, I was talking to Spike Trotman and we were both reveling in the fact there's a great thing about making a book, an offset printed book, because there's a ton of companies that know how to make it there's a huge industry about making books i don't have to i don't have to learn you don't it. have to reinvent yeah, it. yeah. so it's yeah. great so you practically hit a button and an ocean of experts take care of it and you know with Incodai, you developed the process so you developed over years this incredibly complicated process of making a replicable ink that was consistent and delivered exactly what you wanted. If you're an industrial designer, maybe you have to work with tool and dye people and you're creating dyes and injection molding and then you perfect it and you're like, great. 
And then that's that point that you're like, wait, why is it hard now? Yeah. And why? And why? Like, to your point, like, I think it's shocking to people. Like, why if, if you know, why is it so hard to make a box? Like, it sounds so simple. Like, why is it so hard to get a custom box made? And then and then, of course, the the there's the double double answer. One is that making physical things is hard, requires a tremendous amount of manufacturing process experience and physicality and you know yeah someone presses a button for 100,000 boxes and it's actually you know 20 truckloads and so that's complicated <laughs> but then the other other thing going back to Shopify Square like those types of companies is that the the that the types of people who have gravitated towards those problems there's like too much of a brain drain occurring on the physical side where it's like just just the right brains who are really familiar with what is possible in 2018 haven't yet or we're trying to change that but haven't yet gravitated towards mm. all these physical problems mm -hmm. it is truly when you say like i'm dealing with this in the 1990s way you might be being optimistic like to be honest a lot of the manufacturing world is running in a 1960s wow. or 1970s wow. way um and and it's not necessary it's just that the brains haven't been pointed in the right direction necessarily yet it's funny because i saw this at amazon when i was there in uh, 96 and 97 i was the catalog manager and we were dealing with these incredibly <laughs> antiquated what seemed to us incredibly antiquated systems because we're using cutting edge Oracle database, web servers, you know, we've got megabytes of memory and gigabytes of storage for the whole company, right? And we're doing, we're dialing into like mainframe prof systems at the distributors. <laughs> and we're like, what is this? Why are you guys living in like 1980? It's 1996 for crying out loud. But we're, we've only moved it for. Are you still dealing with prof systems? Is that why you're laughing? Or are you dialing? No, we're laughing. We've been laughing the whole time since you started talking about being a catalog. <laughs> I'm just picturing that seed. I'm just picturing just Tron like right now. Oh, and Oracle and you said processor or something. We've been laughing the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Continue. It, yeah. it was the best. I worked with every department. Um, That's amazing. I have, I have stories. I did an internet history podcast. Brian McCall has this great podcast. I've debriefed on that about that period of time. I'll put a link in the show notes. It was a fun time. Please, but, please. But do. it's so it's interesting. I've lived through multiple revolutions. I started as a typesetter in the in the digital analog era when it was still a hybrid. You know, went through desktop publishing went through, you know, the digital publishing, web publishing, you know, mobile responsive design. So um, each of those eras has meant huge dislocation in just in like one aspect of what I work on. Uh, and, and yeah, the thing that's consistent is <laughs> old technology, with the exception of photo typesetting, old technology never really dies. Um, and it's still out there being preserved. But Glenn, they, I think Jesse's uh, died of asphy asphyxiation. I, She's I, like can't I, breathe I, after this story. My stomach is. Oh my I feel like we we need to plug you into the Matrix. Yeah, oh like you need to move on to like a purely Your like human experience of what the internet even is is like no one else's. Like we need to upload I'm you very like, to the cloud. Like you guys, I roll with the punches, and interesting things happen. And I say yes, and then I wind up working at Amazon or meeting. Um, Werner Herzog, you know, things like that. Life oh is my a, gosh. Life is a cavalcade. But, okay. That's incredible. But so here's the, here's the thing. I don't think people understand. Let me say this, and you can agree or disagree. Yeah. I don't <laughs> think people understand that shipping is violence, right? I think people yeah, think of no. shipping as this, even if they think about boxes being thrown off trucks and, and just the process of it, I don't think they understand the sheer madness of what the modern shipping or any, you know, it's terror. Yeah. Like, yes, it's terror. It's violence. It's like horrifying. And, 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 and it's also so, so antiquated. Like, uh, in, well, antiquated is not even the right word. It's just very, it's, uh, that's, that's kind of a mean word. It's a very physical. So people are just so shocked <laughs> using Amazon for a second here as like a thing. Like sometimes I tell my team or we tell our team, like we are selling packaging to a, a generation kind of weaned on like, you know, buying toothpaste on Amazon. Like the concept <laughs> that they would even have to go to CVS is like, an inconvenience so so that is that we're selling packaging to people who have already started companies and they grew up buying toothpaste on amazon or something and so you the the physical realities are so um so dramatic and we deal in a world where um things happen like we've had uh, con you know containers that like extreme weather on, on the high seas and containers oh, can yeah. fall off ships. Yeah. So containers can like fall off ships or hurricanes or facilities can get flooded. Um, or, you know, the, the press operator that understands that is the only one who understands how to work a certain machines wife goes into labor. And so no one gets their boxes. Like things happen. Like it's so physical. This is why you know? I love it is the intense physicality of, 
packaging manufacturer and why you're making it to go through this maelstrom of shipping. Um, I just got a box a couple days ago. I ordered some wood from a supplier, uh, uh, wood solid wood for a 2D laser cutter I have, and I need some specific stuff. And it shows up, and it, look, it looks like the box had like betrayed the mafia. Like, it, like I don't know, I don't know what it did, but it was it had some concrete shoes it on. Just it was, but you know, to, to tribute to the shipper, the the wood company actually packaged the wood well enough that despite the violence the box went through, I will try to put a picture in the show notes. I took pictures in case it was broken. Wood's actually in perfect condition. It's like yeah. the crumple uh, zone on a car. You know, you <laughs> yeah, want it to yeah. kind of uh, take all the absorb all the uh, kinetic is, energy. It's, it's, it goes through so much, and then, but it's like it's um, you know, uh, Stefan talks about that Louis C.K. joke about like a uh, beaming how like people get frustrated, you know, paying a parking meter and how it like takes an extra like three seconds to process. But the parking meter, the poor parking meter is beaming up to a satellite to like process your credit <laughs> right. card. Like it's already so impressive, and yet you're like, oh my gosh, it took three seconds. I'm so frustrated. And but that's how that's how shipping is too, where it's like, oh my gosh, this thing showed up to my doorstep. Like I can't believe the you know corners are bent, and it's like. That somehow the world has created a system where you can press a button and something that was manufactured overseas like and then sits in warehouses across the country from you got to your doorstep in like like 32 hours and you didn't have to even leave your house to get this like complex thing delivered to you that's incredible but it's also like but the corner was bent so I guess it's dead to me. It's like a fascinating human thing where our expectations are always being reset. Oh, no, it's great. It's it's crazy what we uh, what we expect and also what we accept too. And you know, I'm ordering things now. I'll go onto Amazon or somewhere and I'll order a thing, and it comes from China, and the shipping is affordable. I'm like, how did they? How does this supply chain work that I can order this weird part from China and it goes, you know, ten thousand miles, and the whole thing makes sense, and it you know, end to end, uh, it's a, it's a it's a mystery. And I mean, that's where. You know, this is where we get to that mixed analog digital world is that the the reason all the shipping is possible is because we live in a world in which things can be tracked and measured. So there's lots of aspects that are incredibly physical and antiquated, but then there is streamlining and efficiency that actually makes the flow of packages at the level and cost that they are um, doable as well. Um, well, so I don't want to get this. I mean, I'm not, you know, we're, this is obviously we never, we never <laughs> these podcasts don't turn to advertisements for people's companies, of course, but I do want to talk about what you do now so you've you moved from Incodai, yeah. you moved into uh solving people's problems and the problem people yeah. had that you that you wanted to solve that you knew best at least to start with was this packaging manufacturer thing and this issue of yeah. scale um or, or or even uh ordering you know when we talked a couple of years ago i remember being kind of surprised like i i think the uh uh everybody goes to uline and uh mm-hmm. That's like one scale, and you can buy all kinds of stuff from them. Although I will never buy from yeah. them again, but that's a whole <laughs> yeah. that's a whole other that's issue. Whole other thing. It's about extremism. <laughs> it's not about political opinion. It's about extremism. Uh, but so exactly. you know, you get the obviously thirty pound catalog in the mail, and and you order a yes. hundred things from them, or you know, Amazon now people clearly buy from Uline and other sources, and then they sell smaller quantities there at markup, yeah. but it's still cheaper. Uh, and then there's like this scale of like a million. And I, I remember you telling this. I was kind of still sort of profoundly changed my view of how packaging works is um, can you talk about that space in the middle how big a space it is between really small quantities and the kinds of quantities that let you uh, you know that very large companies use I don't think I realized that space was that big it, it yeah it, it truly is a vast amount of a vast uh, range right where and, and I think we even a year or two into this business we're, we're shocked by it and it's encouraged us to service larger companies than we thought we were mm. set out to because we realized that they were small in the packaging ecosystem and so you have to put a finer point on it like brands using um, you know tens of thousands or having tens of thousands of shipments a month are are very very small in the shipping in the in the shipping and logistics and packaging world but but they're they could be a very large company I mean shipping 10,000 shipments a month is a very operable we never got to that place even with Incodai it's a very large-scale business from a concept of what is a running business but from a packaging industry standpoint where it's like $400 billion North America and you've got the really large companies using tens of millions of units a month mm-hmm. and a quarter, you like some of the larger customers at Lumi now use 
mil, like, you know, million plus units a quarter. And that makes them small fish in the packaging ecosystem. Wow. So the ways that we support them and the systems that we build for order routing, efficient order routing from the need to the right manufacturing location and doing some interesting things with mapping. And we've got a way for them to order efficiently and stuff like that, which is the software stuff. That stuff still benefits, benefits this range of companies shipping, you know, thousands of things to companies shipping low millions um, because because all of them are sitting in this small, you know, small kid soup of like that they're still the small fish um, in the packaging ocean, which is mind blowing, right? That's, the, it just speaks to the sheer magnitude of shipping, packaging and e-commerce um, in general. And you've got a whole bunch of pieces that you're fulfilling or sitting in fulfilling. There's um, design elements, there's manufacturer, uh, or there's supervising manufacturer, there's, you know, ordering things, there's just, mm -hmm. and there's logistics. Seems like, uh, I mean, I know you're not a broker, but you occupy some of the roles that a broker does sometimes, but it, it, you're really more like, um, it feels like you're a quantity design house more than anything else. I don't know. How do you describe your it's business? Like I think the way of thinking about it is like um, like an online distribution layer that's that's mm. very efficient that you could trust that you can trust is data driven. So a broker, you know, the classic like broker mentality is, you know, I know a guy who knows the guy. Like, oh, you need some boxes. Well, I know some people who make boxes. I know how they talk. Let me get that box order in right. for you, and then they're taking a cut. Well, so there is the similarities like. We also know people who make boxes, but the, but the complete and utter difference is that we're mapping box production all over the world. Where does every box facility sit? So it's a little bit more than who I know a guy who knows a guy. It's like efficient order routing. And then there's price leverage that comes from making packaging across hundreds of brands. And then to your point, we don't only just secure the stuff for you. We have an ordering interface that makes your life easier, uh, supports your business. But then there's the other fringe elements where, again, going back to the Amazon generation concept, you got someone who comes in and they go, I need packaging. Well, that's a pretty big place to start. Like there's thousands of different, different types of packaging. Everything we sell is custom, so it can be custom branded. So walking someone through in a more kind of full stack way from the moment that they decided they need it to the moment that custom manufactured stuff is sitting in their warehouse, that end-to-end -end thinking is also something that we pride ourselves on. It's like there's a lot of questions to address in that system. Like it's that end-to-end -end thought process. It's so many moving pieces. <laughs> yeah, thing. it really is. And you're is, tracking yeah. it all. I mean, so I, sh I should mention to people too, and I'll put a link in the show notes about this, is that uh, uh, Lumi has, uh, you all are making uh, podcasts. You have a podcast series that's now, uh -huh. what, 70 episodes? You're well well into it um, in the podcast series. And uh, you've got a video series that I love mm -hmm. because I love watching how <laughs> things are made and done. And the, so the video series is like, like little snippets of answering questions about, um, you know, about flexographic printing or uh, how corrugated boxes are made or stickers. Mm -hmm. uh, and you've got a blog as well. So you've all this kind of educational side, which I know doubles a bit as outreach and marketing, but it's all very informative. Um, so it <laughs> puts you in an interesting position where you're teaching people you know, people know they need to ship things. There's so many businesses, especially small businesses, um, because of, as you say, there's all these digital enablers. I mean, I couldn't be mm -hmm. shipping. I, I sell a lot of stuff online now, a lot for me. And I have uh, shipped like a thousand packages in the last year, which is a ton for me. That's more than I've yep. shipped the rest it's of my life. And yeah. I've had to learn a lot about shipping and, uh, and packaging. It's been great, but my quantity is extremely small. But there's a lot of people like me who are shipping anything from relatively small amounts to increasingly large amounts of stuff, depending on where they are in a startup company phase. So it feels like there's a lot of things to be learned that people know to learn. You're not, you know, it's not like you're trying to tell people why they should drink a carbonated soda. Right, right. It's like a knowledge that they need to run their companies. And we're trying to, we're trying to put that out there in as transparent a way as possible and have some fun with it. So what are the mistakes people make? <laughs> I know there's an endless list, but are there, are there common mistakes people make that you go up against again and again that you'd like to say, look, here's, here's the thing. Don't do X, Y, and Z. Well, there's something that might be counterintuitive for, for people to hear from us, which is um, use less packaging, oh, <laughs> um, wow, yeah. uh, which is, you know, we sell packaging, so people might not expect us to say that. But uh, there's definitely a customer 
um, customer trend, which is people don't like waste. Uh, and, and that's good, I think, for humanity. And, and brands sometimes will be trying to impress their customers. And so they're over packaging. Like packaging to us, even to us, like it's a, it's a means to an end to get a product from point A to point B. It should be as beautiful and as communicative as possible while it's doing that. But to use three boxes when you could have used one or to put something inside three plastic sleeves when you could have used one is not necessary. And beautiful, elegant packaging is simple. Um, and the reason why it's even important to us from a business perspective is we, we're in it for the long haul with your brand. We and, and so seeing early and young brands kind of overdo it is something that I would caution against. I can see that too. And everyone has the story. I mean, Amazon is, is both the best and worst at this. Is sometimes you get something that you're like, oh, they figured out how to yeah. do this. Other times, I got something the other day, this giant box. And I'm like yeah. this many years in and like something rattling around the bottom. And I'm like, really? Is that the best we yeah. can do at this time? Uh, yeah. But I, I love this is why, again, I love the videos and I love the site in like uh, looking at the kinds of custom boxes that people make. And again, I don't want to turn this into a sales pitch for you, but I have, but I, I've learned a lot about that notion of, I thought some kinds of custom boxes, especially to fit fragile things or things that have a certain shape mm -hmm. would, um, you know, I know that can reduce packaging, but I thought it was um, like unaffordable, but it seems like there's these sweet, these sweet spots where a company can get something that is, you know, custom designed to fit the product they're making. And, and because people are buying a lot more analog stuff now, um, there's mm -hmm. more of a need for something that actually delivers it without you know, without it breaking, basically. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a, you're, you're drawing up a good point, too, that I think people should consider, which is, like, what's what's expensive if something's arriving broken? Like, so you've got, you know, you have you have your, I, I think, you know, this will be a very, very general statement, but for the most part, a lot of the things that we coach um, younger entrepreneurs our um, companies on when they're doing their packaging is like kind of cracking a spreadsheet, like to the unit economics checkout. You know, if you're selling a $20 t-shirt, you have a certain budget for packaging, like maybe spend up to 50 cents. If you're selling a thousand dollar camera, maybe you can spend $5 or something on a box um, and have it still be a reasonable expenditure. So there's, it's almost like, you know, basic, but Again, it comes back to kind of like, is it really our job to help them figure that out? No, not not if you consider us just a packaging supplier, but we don't think of that as our job. We want the brands to succeed. You know, like we want the brands to get what they need from us and succeed. Yeah, and I think you've identified there is that really interesting point that, you know, so many things uh, now exist to let you put everything together. And this is one of the, there are some final frontiers and, and packaging and shipping, like anything physical are still them, still there. And some aspects of manufacturing, I, I did a digital book earlier this year, a digitally printed book, which is, you know, fancy, fancy photocopying mm -hmm. uh, on, on high-end systems that are uh, fairly automated. And wow, has that come a long way. And I, some parts of it were still a little clunky where like uploading a file, I had to do something a little more manual, but it really was a, you know, back and forth, some prints, something shows up in the mail, a digital proof or a, an actual, like a digital proof. Then I get an actual proof mm -hmm. and then I get a bunch of books and they look exactly like what I wanted. And the ease of doing that and the speed was incredible. I'm like, all right, this is a physical process that people have actually figured out how to master and, and get to this point. It's kind of exciting, but we don't have a stripe for shipping really. Yep. Yeah. It's just, and it's, I think it's going to be a while, but, but I'm, but I'm glad to see people working on some of these problems. You know, obviously I consider us in, in that bucket, but there's other companies like, you know, Flexport is freight forwarding, um, kind of consolidated and, and, um, with a very interesting platform. There, there's, there's people, there's other people working on like very physical processes that have kind of languished. Um, and so I, th I think it's very encouraging to see other people doing uh, stuff like that as well. Yeah, and I know a lot of people get down on uh, stamps.com, which is not a sponsor of this podcast, unlike all other podcasts on the internet. Uh, <laughs> but I found uh, for what I was shipping and, and still today, like they were invaluable uh, because they hit the scale I needed and it's super flexible. So um, without stamps.com, I don't know what I would have done because I would have had to pay a lot more money or use mail houses for some things it was it was a very interesting point but i don't think it fits everybody you should definitely get paid for that going no i know isn't that terrible yeah i have no i have no coupon codes for you folks this is unpaid endorsement i was surprised i'd used them before and i found it more frustrating and and as a mac user i'm using a browser and i have to use chrome like there's all these things and i'm still like you know 
despite a lot of clunkiness, because they interface so well with the USPS system, uh, it's, you know, I can do media mail. This is how I made, uh, I was able to get my, the book I produced earlier this year. I really messed up on packaging and weight, and I managed to get it at the kind of the last minute by accident, everything together under 3.5 ounces so I could ship it as an envelope. <laughs> Uh, yeah, a non-machinable uh, envelope that was mailed flat. And um, if I hadn't, it would have cost a lot more. Uh, I, imagine imagine a whole company of people who just think about that oh, all the time. It's a dream. Yeah, that's Lumi. <laughs> it's a dream for like, me. Well, it's funny because when you think about, there's that old Simpsons episode where uh, the, the whole class goes to a field trip and they're all very, very excited and the place they go is a box oh, factory. Yeah. And the joke being, it's like literally the most boring field it's trip used, that could ever happen. The box factory is used as the most boring thing that could ever happen to other people. <laughs> is this like going to so box factory? Funny. And this is what we do every day. <laughs> but, you know, this is the part that I think for myself is, is extremely rewarding about running a bigger company now. You know, we're 40 people roughly. And that idea that we talked about at the beginning of... Uh, being infinitely curious and almost aggressively curious is something that we actually look for in every employee oh, that joins Lumi. Yeah. And so it's like Jesse and I have 40 other brains who go and scour all these different areas that we're curious about. And every Friday we have this thing called Feature Friday where someone brings back something that they went and learned and teaches it to everybody else. And that's like incredibly fun because we go down some crazy rabbit holes about the paper mills and where everything, like how the stuff actually gets produced and how that the recycled corrugate that comes from the boxes that you throw out end up going to China to make boxes in China because they don't have the fibers that are long mm -hmm. enough because all their forests are made out of bamboo. And like there's all these like you can go extremely deep in every direction and I'm perfectly fine with the fact that boxes are still very boring <laughs> to like 99.9% .9 of the population, but that's okay. Like that's what our company that's is right. here for. You can outsource the box information. Uh, unlike, you know, it's not Dropbox. It's not box dot, whatever. <laughs> it's, it's a different kind of box. Um, you have a, provided a natural transition to a question I have too, though, which I think is kind of the, the last big question, which is uh, over the history of the company, uh, you guys have been very self-driven, and you, uh, at various points, you know, were self-funded. And I think uh, you correct me if you're wrong. If there was some, you had some outside funding, but like friends and family-ish, mm -hmm. angel-ish yeah, funding. Exactly. Do I remember that right? Yeah, that's correct. And yeah. so, but uh, you know, it was this is a reported fact is you've got nine million dollar uh, early stage investment uh, round in uh, Lumi recently, and uh, you know, I often talk to really small companies or companies with ten people, and um, you know, you all are people I've known for years now and have met a number of times have followed the progress of what you're doing. And so I feel like this is a, it's a natural discussion to say, okay, you hit that inflection point where it made sense. Like, how did you decide to take money? Uh, you know, having not had to do anything at this scale before and having a, you know, a profitable business that you wound down um, in something mm -hmm. that's growing, like, like what is the motivation at this stage in your development to say, we need outside funding? I think it's I think it's a really interesting question because it's also like I'd like to flip it on its head almost which is which is we um I think that Stefan and I lean in to every adventure we're on like 100%. And so like the that that first company with Incodai was was like a bootstrap mentality with like, you know, a little bit of friends and family, the whole, with Kickstarter the whole time. And so we leaned into that and like took it to its full max capacity and, and did it as an adventure. Then when we started this business with a trip to, you know, Y Combinator and doing that program, that is, you know, a pretty firm start on a venture capital journey. Um, because of the way that program is formed and, you know, we effectively took institutional investment, even though it's an accelerator, like from day one, effectively at this company. Um, and so I think that it's twofold. One, one will sound dumb and one will sound smart. <laughs> the, the, the dumb part is like committing to the journey no matter what, meaning like, well, we made this choice. We got the funding from Y Combinator. Um, everyone, you know, there's a cycle of like you do demo day, you get funding. So like, why would we just randomly opt out like let's see this through and and so we're kind of like still seeing it through that's the part that sounds dumb it's just like okay you mean you just did it because people are doing it so that's the dumb part the second part 
The smart part is the part where we, at various points in this company, start realizing and uncovering an idea that's worthy of that type of funding that where where Incodai, it would be a complete mistake, essentially business mistake to take $9 million into the Incodai company. Not that that was an option we had, but it would be a mistake because the you could never sell enough of that product to get the right re- return potentially, or it's kind of a flawed premise to accept that much money into the fabric dye entity. So, whereas with this, as we started really getting into it, the opportunity was so vast, like, that we really realized, like, wow, like, okay, now we're affecting 100 companies, but we truly could affect 1,000. We could truly affect 10,000 um, with what we're building, with what, with what we're up to. And then, this this may sound, so I've shared a dumb idea, a smart idea, and now I'll share one that might sound too pie in the sky, which is, like, there's a part of you, I think, as an entrepreneur that kind of goes who am I to hold this idea back? Like, mm. like this idea can become a really huge company. Um, we can affect, you know, a really large amount of people with it. It's working um, enough, you know, or better than other things we've tried. Um, so, like, uh, why throttle it? Like, wh- who am I to throttle it, so to speak? Um, but it is a big life decision, too. Th- this might be something that entrepreneurs talk less about, but it's like, your job is different as a CEO of a venture-backed company than a CEO of a bootstrap company. Your life is different. Your schedule is different. You travel different. Like you, people, you talk to investors every week instead of not talking to investors every week. So it's also a life choice. Um, and we've, so, but Steph and I just firmly decide these things and then we kind of go for it for lack of a more sophisticated way of explaining it. I've heard from some folks who've accepted uh, venture capital who've been gone through sort of a similar experience where they've done a lot of they've been employees of companies or they've had their own company that's been essentially self-funded or friends and family light angel funding, and they've they've accepted investor capital that uh, you know there's a reputation of this vulture capitalist right there's a mm-hmm. reputation especially in Silicon Valley of uh, companies that are uh, you know everything has to be a hockey stick everything has to be a unicorn. Um, Everything is aggressive and whatever. But what I've heard from some entrepreneurs is they actually wound up taking money partly because they needed investment to move forward. They needed to hire staff or buy more materials or have the right cash flow to expand. Uh, but the advice they got from the uh, venture capitalists, from those folks, that that was more valuable to have. Like, uh, then the money was obviously useful. <laughs> no, don't turn away millions of dollars uh, for no reason. But um, has that played out for you that – that that insight into how to scale and move the company forward has been valuable. I think we definitely enjoy the rigor of it. Like when you're doing your own thing, you are operating by your own rules in every good and bad way. And when you have to work with an investor, you have to organize your information and your financials and you have to think about things from their perspective. You have board meetings, you you have this structure and we were interested in that structure. We were curious about how that would help us. And every time we got pushback, you know, if we were raising money, like, for example, in the $9 million fundraise that we did, um, we actually found that really fascinating. We liked the questions that they were asking, and we thought they were good and that we wanted to have a good answer to those. And, of course, that depends on finding the right people. I think that the instincts that we built up over the course of like, you know, five, six years of running a bootstrap company were really good because they taught us. I I would, I wouldn't do it the other way around. Let's say they taught us (laughs) to be scrappy and to like use money wisely. Like we didn't come when we got like a bunch of money in our bank account. We weren't right away uh, looking to, it wasn't burning a hole in our pocket. Let's say we were, we were thoughtful about how we were going to use it. Um, but when we decided to go on this path, the first thing that we did was go to every person that we knew who had raised venture funding and asked them how it went, who they liked working with, who they didn't like working uh. with. And, and they gave us some really good advice. And the people that we ended up working with, Homebrew was the, the firm that did our seed round. Satya and Hunter are just like so smart and friendly and nice and thoughtful, but also challenging us to like have you know, big ideas. I think there's there's a lot of opportunity there. And if it's the type of thing that you're interested in, it could be a really good path. And I think you picked an industry in the way this is all kind of played out that uh, has a 
it's not an endless top, but I mean, Inco Dye had a natural top and you weren't sure, you didn't go into the, the business knowing what the size of the business could ultimately be. And it wound up being profitable, right? But the uh, packaging industry, even the segment that you've cut out, is some kind of multi-billion dollar, if not multi-tens of billions of dollar piece. And it's not that you could own the whole thing, but conceivably, you know, you could own, I don't know, I'm not sure what your scope of your ambitions are or your investors, but it seems conceivable that you could be own a, you know, tens of millions of dollars is obviously readily achievable uh, with the right, maybe you're already at that scale for all I know, we're on track to that scale. Um, but uh, hundreds of millions or billions is not infeasible Given we cannot disclose any financial information. <laughs> but let's say, let's say, but I, so I will say it is that it's not infeasible that your business yes, has a exactly. very large top because of the size of the industry that you're in. And as we've talked about, the kind of antiquated uh, and outdated parts of it that make it hard for people to get what they want. And so you guys are, I, I always like to talk to people who are facilitators um, and, you know, facilitators, uh, you know, like Kickstarter remains a facilitator because they charge a very little sum to dramatically amplify what you do. And I think you all fit easily into that category of providing a big win that is efficient. You know, that what you're charging, you have to make a profit. This is a business after all. It's like, oh, it's a cash deal, right? It's a, it's a, uh, this is mm -hmm. what it's about. But you're not, um, what you're doing is very efficient for people who, whose other options are probably more expensive or vastly more time consuming for them. So, uh, it feels like there's a very, anyway, there's a very big, without just talking about numbers, it feels like you found a very big area in which you have room to do new things. Yeah. And, and venture capital is a shortcut. You know, it puts money to allow you to do bigger things quicker. And in our case, you know, what, and you pay for that because you, you pay for it in equity in your company. And so in our case, what we wanted to be able to do was, um, help the companies that are in this particular moment in time right now where direct-to-consumer is like a booming new idea and a lot of people need help there. And second of all, we wanted to work with really smart engineers, really smart people that could help us in that. And we knew that Jesse and I didn't have the, the wherewithal and the experience and, and all the knowledge that we needed to achieve that dream. Well, in five years, I expect to come back and find out why you're colonizing Mars. Exactly. <laughs> Teleportation is yeah, really the next evolution I mean, of packaging. You know, we're right. learning like a creepy amount about like paper fibers and stuff. I don't know. It could go in some weird places. Yeah. <laughs> I love paper fiber. You're talking about all my favorite things. Uh, well, uh, Stefan Ango, Jesse Janae, our Lumi, and thank you very much for being back on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Such a pleasure. This was episode 101 of The New Disruptors. The theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, audio lives at SoundCloud, and the site runs on Squarespace. This episode was edited by Stephen Schapansky. You can help support this podcast and fund the production of more episodes by visiting newdisrupt.org support and find out about monthly and yearly membership options that include access to a private discussion forum for listeners, a fancy enamel pin, and being thanked on an episode. This episode copyright 2018, a periodical LLC. It's licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution by linking back to newdisrupt.org. I only ask you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, and please join us again next time. Thanks for listening.